Hello, this is Alan Parry with my weekend check-in podcast. I'm just checking in with you. So, how are you doing? How are you doing? Yeah, never mind me. How are you doing? Hope you've had a good weekend. Hope you've had a lovely week as well. Well, I, I'm, I'm recording this at the moment and it's uh, it's Sunday. It's, uh, God, what date is it? It's the 9th of July. Um, early on in the morning, so... Uh, I'm looking out my window here and the, the weather forecast said it's going to be quite nice today. It's still a bit overcast. kind of hope it stays that way, to be honest. I hate all this super hot weather. I'm a spring man, you see. I think I think an all-year-round spring, uh, I'm going to get in touch with Jeremy Corbyn, I think, and, and ask him to put that in the in the plans. I, I, a spring all-year-round, that would get my vote. Um, and I'm also expecting a parcel, so at any time you could hear the high drama of a door knock from a very insistent parcel delivery person, and I shall have to pause this and leg it downstairs and open the door and grab me parcel. And I'll, I'll tell you what it is, I won't hide it from you. I'm getting like a really long Ethernet cable, because my computer where I'm recording this at the moment is upstairs, but my internet kind of connecting device router is it called i'm saying this i used to work in the computer science department i should i should be able to remember words so um yeah so that's downstairs and so the only way i'm connected at the moment is by a 30 foot ethernet cable because i I do like video things here and stuff like that with with my work and um yeah so i need a hard connection you know rather than just the wi-fi so that's what I've got at the moment. Now, this has been something of a saga on Facebook, um, as I've been. <laughs> I mean, I'm not the handiest of men at all. Um, I mean, at all. So there's been this saga on Facebook, because the way I've got it at the moment, I've just got this 30-foot wire draping all over the stairs and across the hall. And I've managed to kind of put it behind the couch so it's it's not draped across the floor in the living room anymore. But it was like that for many months. Um, so what I'm trying to do... Yeah, and the problem with the current Ethernet cable is, of course, because it's draped everywhere, I've been standing on it and it's all the cable is frayed away. It's, I'm sure it's a health and safety risk. So I decided yesterday that I would actually get myself some, some more cable, a fresh one. And I've got this plan that... It's a plan that was given to me because I was completely nonplussed. And I'm still doubtful about whether I'll execute it well. But my friend Gabby, you know, from the band The Good Intentions, she she's, um, she actually bought me, knowing how bad I am as a handyman, she actually bought me a hammer. <laughs> now, when a friend buys you a hammer, what they're implicitly saying is, you're probably not the kind of man who owns a hammer or who has any use for a hammer. Uh, and of course, she was quite right. So I've got this hammer now. <laughs> I've got this hammer, and she's also bought me. Um, she's also bought me these little. Um, oh, I don't know what they're called, but they're like little. They're like little tacks. So what you do is you tap them in, and it goes and and keeps the wire in place. So I've planned out this little route, whereby um, my wire's going to go and be relatively hidden. And so um, that's 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 the plan. So if the door knocks, I'll just press pause on this. I'll go and get me pass and I'll come back up and carry on whatever nonsense I was talking about. So that's exciting, isn't it? It's always exciting to get a parcel rather than a bill. Uh, I hate that when you get a, an envelope and the envelope's brown and you think, oh God, this doesn't look good. And it never is, is it? Well, I was at um, 
I was at the the Philharmonic last night. Um, there's, uh, as you probably know, it's the 50th anniversary of Sergeant Pepper. And um, in fact, I meant to I meant to pull up Sergeant Pepper on my browser. So let's do that now. But I'll, while I'm doing it, um, I just want the um, I can't remember off the top of my head. You see what the what the track listing is. So if I if I go onto uh, my search engine and find out what that is. Yeah, so it's the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper. So they had this thing where the bootleg Beatles um, were there. And they were doing a concert with the full orchestra, which is pretty cool, isn't it? And we were right at the, at the back of the auditorium. And um, I can't find this. I mean, I'm on Wikipedia at the moment, but it's... Oh, here we go. We've got the track list. Now, I want to talk about that in a sec. Yeah, so we were right at the back of the auditorium. It was like a present for me dad. My dad wasn't very well at the, at the end of last year and uh, really battled on through it. And so um, when I saw this, I thought he'd love this. He's, he's like the number one Beatles fan, both in terms of how much he loves them, how much he excludes pretty much all other music apart from Lonnie Donegan. Uh, from his consciousness, and, and, and maybe me, I don't know. <laughs> but also he knows everything about them, you know, he voraciously reads about them. Um, I think he probably knows far more than many of the tour guides do. And uh, so I thought, right, when I saw this, the full orchestra, great, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go and see that. So me and my mum and dad went, and um, we were right at the back, so I was on a separate row from them. I was five from the from the back of the auditorium. They were four rows from the back. But, you know, with it being the bootleg Beatles, I think we actually had a better view because I've seen them before, and obviously they try and look as much like them as possible, don't they? Because that's the whole point. Um, but when you're close up, you, you can kind of see their facial features, and you're like, hang on, that's not Paul. Whereas when you're up, you know, all the way back in the gods, you don't get that. You just see these guys bopping around, you know, in Sergeant Pepper costumes and, and they kind of do look the Beatles, you know, from that distance. So it worked out really well, but it was quite interesting watching it. Everyone always goes mad about Sergeant Pepper and I was kind of brought up on the Beatles and I love the Beatles, you know, I think they're, I think they're great, you know, and I love the whole range of the Beatles as well. Um you know, you've got so many different genres within the one band. I really like that. You know, you've got something really folky like Mother Nature's Son, and then you've got something like Your Blues. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I love the Beatles. But I've never been that enamoured by um, by Sgt. Pepper in particular. You know, everyone goes on about it. And I have to say, there's some, there's some great songs on there, really, aren't there, when you actually look at the track listing. But one of the things that, that struck me really was, um, you know, because they, they played the whole thing from start to finish. And the thing that kind of interested me was Lennon's influence by this point. You know, we're in 1967. And, you know, by the time of, let's say, by the time of the 10th song... Lennon had really only had a, a, a leading role in two of the songs. That's ridiculous, isn't it? So you always think of John Lennon as the driving force of the Beatles. But Sgt. Pepper, this, this thing that is regarded as their kind of magnum opus, he'd only been on 20% of the tracks until we got to Good Morning, Good Morning. So when you think of this, you've got Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I think it was all McCartney's idea anyway, wasn't it? He does the lead vocals on that. We then switched to, with a little help from my friends, 
And then we get Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. So at this point, it's looking pretty straightforward. Then we have McCartney on Getting Better, McCartney on Fixing a Hole, McCartney on She's Leaving the Home, which is an outstanding song, I think. And then finally, we get Lennon back again for his second number out of the seven, which is being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. And then we go to the uh, Within You, Without You with George Harrison. And then we've got two more of McCartney, When I'm 64 and Lovely Rita. And it's only then that Lennon emerges with Good Morning, Good Morning, and then the classic Day in the Life. And it was just interesting, really, to see that, because I always see Lennon as... Well, you see it as Lennon McCartney, don't you? But it, it was interesting because I, I'm, I'm aware of some of the spats that they had you know, around the breakup and after the breakup. And, and I remember Lennon accusing McCartney of of doing grandmother music, you know, and of, of the Beatles increasingly being Paul's backing band. And I could kind of see on both counts, really, where he was coming from. And I, I, I mean, I'm not saying this as an attack on Paul, by the way, because I don't know how... I don't know how much Lennon was even with us then, how much he was experimenting with various various substances or whether he was off his face all the time or what. But this, uh, you do see it because like songs like Lovely Rita and When I'm 64, I don't know, they, they felt like, um, you know, watching them in their funny costumes doing this sort of kind of parlour music really, uh, which is nothing wrong with that, but they didn't seem to be kind of like an edgy rad... Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sound like a bloody idiot now because this obviously was radical of its time and I'm looking back 50 years later. But looking back 50 years later, this doesn't seem like something that... I don't know, it, it seemed kind of safe, a lot of it. And the, the edgy bits were where Lennon came in, you know, with Lucy in the Sky and being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, kind of kept the sort of theme of things being a little bit otherworldly and and that we're in this sort of social club thing. But he, he seems to take it to some kind of different level, I suppose. I don't know, maybe it's his vocals being kind of raspy. I don't know what it is, but it just feels different. And A Day in the Life, again, just really stands out as a, as a, a track that goes beyond just sort of something safe and obladi obladarish. So I could kind of see what Lennon was talking about there when I, I watched the tracks, tracks being performed one after the other. But what, what, what's your take on Sgt. Pepper? It's a, that magical mystery tour have never been favourites of mine. You know, I, I particularly love the um, the White Album. It's funny, actually, that I quote a couple of tracks from it earlier on. Um, but what's your take on this? Because, I mean, I really enjoyed the show. Don't get me wrong. I'm just kind of um, musing on some stuff that I know was going on in terms of the dynamics of the Beatles at the time. And I was kind of seeing Lennon's point of view from it, um, that it did seem very heavily uh, Paul's baby, this, and it did seem as though Lennon was a peripheral figure. You know, as I say, up until... Up until uh, Good Morning, Good Morning, at that point we'd had 10 songs, and Lennon was on equal footing as McCartney and Ringo. You know, McCartney and... No, sorry, not McCartney. Uh, George Harrison and Ringo um, together had had the same amount of lead vocals that Lennon had had. So it's kind of interesting, really. And I do think when you listen to songs like When I'm 64, great song that it is, uh, and songs like Lovely Rita, you know, I can see what Lennon's talking about where he starts talking about grandmother music. It doesn't seem that edgy. And it's when Lennon returns that the the big explosion of edge sort of happens again with things like, um, 
you know, Lucy in the Sky and A Day in the Life and stuff like that. But uh, I'd be interested to hear what you think. It was a great concert, though, and it was great to see the orchestra there. Um, <laughs> the funny thing is, though, Roger McGough was on reading some poems, and, <laughs> you know, I'm such a Philistine. <laughs> but poetry, I mean, there's certain people that really grab me with their poetry, so this doesn't, this doesn't count for all poetry. I've got a mate, for instance, um, Alison Downs. When she reads poetry, I'm on edge. I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm listening. But for most poets, I have to say, um, and Louise Fazakli actually is the same. When she does poetry, I'm listening. But for the vast majority of poets, unless they're funny poets like John Hegley, for the vast majority of poets, this is what I hear when I hear a poem. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 blah. It just doesn't go in. You know, I start off with all the best of intentions and I'm I'm trying to listen to the thing and think, okay, this, this is something that's going to move me. And I, I really hope that it will. And yet what I find is I'm gone, you know. I'm gone. It's just blah, 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 blah. A rose on a summer's day, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and it's, I'm just gone, and then the next minute people are applauding, and I kind of wake up again. It turns me, it it switches me into some sort of hypnotic daydream. Well, maybe that's what poetry does to me. You know, maybe it's the cadence, the rhythm. Maybe I'm not going to get things out of the words. But yeah, <laughs> poor Roger there was giving his poems, and I was off in another world. Sorry, Roger. <laughs> it's not impersonal. It's just it's just I'm a philistine. Yeah. So uh, what else has been going on? Um, actually, yeah, this is the funny thing that I was thinking. Do you know what drives me mad? And I was thinking this because I went into the uh, I went into the toilet at the Philharmonic, obviously. And last week, um, I've been very cultural the last couple of weeks. Last weekend, you remember, I was at the Sum, which was at the Everyman Theatre. And do you know what's driving me round the twist lately? <laughs> I don't know if this is the same with you, but I remember the days when using a tap was the easiest thing in the world. You know, you'd go into a toilet that you'd never been to before. You'd have your wee, um, or, or, or more if you're that way inclined. Not me personally. I like to go on my own toilet for anything more than a wee. <laughs> so you have your wee. <laughs> and then you go to the basin to wash your hands. I'm not an animal. I was brought up properly. I wash my hands. And um, <laughs> So yeah, you go to the basin and it's straightforward, isn't it? It doesn't matter that you've not been in this bathroom before. You, you go to the tap, you twist it, water comes out, you wash your hands and you twist it back again and the water stops. And this was true of every bathroom, so life was easy. Nowadays, I need to keep a note of what all the different bathrooms do. You know, you go into a strange bathroom now and the first thing you spot is, oh, this isn't just like the old-fashioned twisty-turny, water comes out, keep life easy for Alan sort of bathroom basin. No, this is a different kind of tap. So this is one of these taps, and it's going to turn on automatically. Now, there's loads of the, There's like a million and one ways for a tap to give you the water automatically. They, they don't... They, listen, tap manufacturers with all your automatic gizmos, you need to have a conference. You need to come together... And have some sort of industry standard about how the water's coming out. Because I'm doing about 20 different things before I finally figure out. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm tapping on the top. I'm waving my hand underneath the tap itself. Then I wave my hand over the top of the little thing that you would normally twist. 
You know, I'm I'm basically getting water out through through modern dance at the moment. <laughs> so and I, I look an idiot, you know, and everyone else is doing it as well. We're all kind of tapping and waving and and turning our face this way or that way until the water eventually comes out. And just just have a conference, have a big meeting, get get your designers together and just agree an industry standard so I can go into a bathroom and and just know how the tap is going to work rather than thinking, okay, this has got some sort of automatic gizmo on it. God knows what it is. Now it's my job to try and figure it out. You know, the show's starting again in five minutes. I'm not sure I'm going to make it. So, um, yeah, taps drive me, drive me mad. Every time you go into a strange bathroom, that is, and some of them have like a little device on the side that you're meant to know. You know, well, I don't know. I'm going to have to have some sort of instruction manual. I'll get it out of my pocket and I'll flick through and say, oh yeah, every man toilets. Uh, blah, 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 you do this. And oh, I'm in the I'm in the playhouse toilet. Oh, you do this. Just drives me up the wall. So um, yeah, fi- fix this. We need some industry standardization. The other thing that I found bonkers, I, I, I went to pick my mum and dad up to, to take them. And I threw the radio on, and I always go for Radio 4, uh, even though it's kind of smug, or Radio 5 uh, Live, you know, because I like, I like chatting. This is why I listen to podcasts a lot. I like talking heads and listening to stuff. And I didn't like what was on Radio 4. I, don't, I can't remember what they were talking about now. So that's what I always do. Go to Radio 4. Does it sound interesting? If no, go to Radio 5 Live. But God, Wimbledon's on, isn't it? Wimbledon's on. I hate Wimbledon. I, I completely understand when Wimbledon's on how annoyed that people get who don't like football when the World Cup's on, when it just becomes kind of blanket coverage. Because it's like that now, isn't it? It's just uh, it's just tennis constantly. I remember going on holiday with a, a really close friend when I was about, God, I must have been about 18. And it was during the summer and all they wanted to do was watch the tennis. I was on holiday. So we... we <laughs> So, I mean, it's not because of that. I haven't got any kind of attachment. I, I just find it kind of boring just to even to watch. You know, it's just kind of like... Just over and over again. And I, I don't I don't really see the attraction in it. And the games go on for ages. I suppose I quite liked it as a kid, but it just bores me stupid now. Well, get this. I mean, as if tennis on the TV wasn't bad enough. Sorry, tennis lovers, but Radio 5 Live is covering the tennis... Tennis on the radio? <laughs> what on earth is that? So I was listening, and he said, let's go back to the game. And then he went back to the game, and I, I, I can't remember the names of the players, but let's say it's Federer and Nadal. I'm, it wasn't. You'll know it wasn't if you're a tennis follower. But it was. this is what the commentary was like. Federer, Nadal, Federer, Nadal. Hits it back to Federer. Nadal, Federer, Nadal, Federer. That's it. It's just, it's just repeatedly saying the person's name, because, like... It's not like football where you can kind of, you know what I mean? you got Kennedy, plays it to Sooners, Sooners holds onto the ball, knocks it over to the left wing, he finds Ronnie Whelan. You know, you haven't got any, do you like me, me sports commentator voice, by the way? I used to do that as a kid all the time in my tape recorder, just pretending to be John Motson. So yeah, you haven't got any of this sort of build-up where you've got, he pulls with the ball, looks to his left, he's just inside his own half, lays it out to Phil Neal. You haven't got any of that stuff at all, because it's all moving too fast. They whack the ball that hard. It's just Fedra, Nadal, Fedra, Nadal, Fedra, Nadal. I, I think they should just have, like, two buttons. You know, just two buttons, and they just sit, save, save your voice, lads, you know, save your voice. Just press the Fedra button, press the Nadal button. Press the button, Fedra. Press the button, Nadal, Fedra, Nadal. And then every now and again... 
a 15 love. So yeah, that 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 meant I was driving to mum and dad's with no with no amusement whatsoever. I had to turn the radio off. Um, <laughs> the most bonkers idea. Does anyone do, do you listen to tennis on the radio? I mean, does anyone listen to tennis on the radio and get any enjoyment from it? Surely you could just pop in every now and again and go. By the way, Federer won that one. Oh yeah, Nadal held it his serve. You know, every couple of minutes. I could understand that little news updates, but not Fedra Nadal, Fedra Nadal, Fedra Nadal. That's not radio, that's bonkers. Anyway, I'm ranting. So what else did I want to talk to you about? <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I'm doing my uh, weight loss thing. <laughs> well, this had a good start. Do you know, I followed my system perfectly. As you know, I'm trying to lose a pound in the first week. And then the week after, I'll try and lose a half a pound so I can slacken off the calories and then a quarter of a pound. But it's been so easy keeping with the system. I'm actually going to stay um, with another another pound loss. I'm not going to I'm not going to extend my calories. I'm just going to keep with it. And I've got my mate Mark as well. Uh, Mark Woods is on board with this too. So he's actually starting from a slightly higher vantage point. So his his task is a little bit bigger, but. He's going to be sending me uh, photographs of his scales with him stood on them, obviously, um, so I can see what the actual uh, weight is. And uh, he's aiming for 13 stone as well. So me and Mark are going to be in our speedos this time next year, both weighing 13 stone, strutting about, mind you, strutting about, nothing but our, our budgie smugglers <laughs> round New Brighton, New Brighton Bats. And I know it doesn't exist anymore, but we're having it rebuilt just so we can do that. Yeah, you know, strutting around the fountains. While, while, <laughs> you know, we used to go to New Brighton Bats a lot. And the thing I remember most was, well, two things. First, it was the only bats that you would walk into and it was a bit like the sea. You know, you'd walk into it gradually. And the second thing was there was always beauty contests on. There you go, that's a 1970s for you. Yeah, so anyway, I've kept in my system. So I'm going to, I don't feel as though my peasants are rebelling. Um, this is the way I think about it, really, because you get rebellious when you're losing weight, don't you? And uh, I'm not at that point yet, so I'm going to have another week. But this is how cruel my my scales are. <clears throat> I've got a little frog in my throat there, but this is this is how cruel my scales are. Okay, every day I've been like in the build up to to deciding to to do this kind of weight loss challenge. I was always on about say something like 212 pounds or 212.6 it's quite to the point you know my scales got one of them electronic things and so I knew I need I needed to lose weight that's about 15 too basically because 210 pounds is 15 stone and I thought no I want to I want to lose weight but it was always at that 212 marker and I was speaking to you last week I said I was going to do it Monday to Monday I decided no I'll do it podcast to podcast so I'll I'll get weighed you know, every Sunday morning. I'll start right now today, even though it feels like a funny way to do it, Sunday to Sunday. I thought that's what I'm going to do, and then I can report in, keep myself accountable. Well, like I say, every every day has been about 2.12 and a half. On the baseline day that I'm measuring everything from, my scale showed me 2.10. Now, I haven't been 2.10 for ages. You know, I've been on the scale like every other day, and it's always been around the 2.12-ish mark. But no, today, 2.10. And you, I mean, are you like me? You kind of, <laughs> I know it's going to be this way soon with the bloody robots and artificial intelligence and everything. But do you ever, do you ever kind of uh, imply some sort of motivation? 
evil motivation to inanimate objects. Because that's what I did with my scale. I thought, okay, you know this is my baseline data. You've gone deliberately low. So on the first week, it looks like I've put weight on. How cruel is that? How callous is that? So that, that, that's what my scale has done to me. My scale is, is against me, everyone. My scale is trying to sabotage me from the first day. So and that's exactly what's happened, by the way, because I, I was 210, it says, which I know is nonsense. I know it was more like 212-ish or something. And I've got on the scales today, and it was 210.8. So it looks like I've gone and put 0.8 pounds on, but I know it's nonsense. And the other thing is, I've, I've done this before, so I know that we're not a tin of peas. We're mostly water, us humans, aren't we? So sometimes we're retaining it, sometimes we're a bit dehydrated. Depending on the water in our body, we'll, we'll change weight. But at the end of the first week, according to my callous scale, who completely deliberately sabotaged me, I've put 0.8 pounds on. But I know really, I've probably lost about a pound. And it's always funny, you know, when, when I get on the scales, I'm always kind of like, uh, you know... Completely naked, which is fine, except I, I, I keep my scales in the front garden. But other than that, it would be okay. But, um, <laughs> hello, Mrs. Johnson. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, they're in the bathroom, don't worry. But I do, I'm completely, if I could take my glasses off, I would. And the only reason I don't take my glasses off is I can't see that far. I can't see six foot down to, the, uh, to, the, to where the scales are. But yeah, I've put 0.8 pounds on according to this. But I know from the weight loss thing, I'm not demoralized by that. I know I've probably, that was probably an inaccurate reading to start with. And I've probably lost about a pound. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm going to, I'm going to be weighing 182 pounds this time next year. That's my, that's my uh, vow. And you're going to keep me on track, aren't you? you you're going to, you're going to, um, you're going to be my public accountability. Of course you are. Thanks for that. And uh, Mark will be the same. So, um. You know, get that date in your diary for me and Mark strutting around in our speedos. Yeah, I've got quite a lot to talk about today, actually. I'm quite enjoying having these little chats. I was actually thinking, you know, it seems uh, a, a long... I mean, this is an experiment, isn't it? But I'm enjoying it. Are you enjoying it? Um, let me have any comments. I've actually had some comments from, from listeners. I almost said readers then. But you don't read a podcast, do you? Unless it's transcribed. Yeah, so um, when it first launched, Mike Wood got in touch. So thanks for that, Mike. He said, great start to your podcasting career, interesting stuff, and I love the song, though it brought back some bad memories. That's the uh, Fairly Well song, I think, from two weeks ago, wasn't it? It was the song of the week. Yeah, it's kind of a sad breakup song. So, uh, yeah, pro so apologies for that, Mike, bringing it up, but I'm glad you like the song, glad you like the podcast. And my old mate Crispin from Nottingham got in touch to say, really enjoyed this, Alan. Looking forward to some more. So I love getting your comments in. So, um, yeah, do get in touch. Let me know what you think. You can always contact me at al at parrysongs.co.uk. I'd love to hear what you think of this little experiment. Should I keep it going? Should I bang it on the head? I know I like it, but you like it too. It is having listeners because I'm seeing the stats. Um, and it's sometimes round about midweek, I think. Oh, I wouldn't mind having another little natter. See how you're getting on. Uh, see what you're up to and let you know what I'm up to. I was actually at Billy Bragg on uh, Monday, so keeping things all musical. He was given a talk, um, again at the Phil actually, but in the little back room, which I've not been in before since it's been uh, done up. Um, but he was talking about Skiffle, he's got a new book out, uh, and he was fascinating, he really knows his onions. 
and uh, he was talking about the skiffle movement and Lonnie Donegan. And my dad's a massive Lonnie Donegan fan, you know, as I mentioned earlier on. But it was it was funny because as he was describing what was revolutionary back then for people in my dad's generation, I was thinking about Billy and thinking, Billy was that for me, really, because I've always loved music. And then in the early 80s, I, I fell out of love with it a little bit because I was becoming politicised really very young. And I'm talking about like 12, 13, which I know I should have had a childhood instead, but I was getting politicised instead. And all this stuff was happening with Thatcher and no, no musicians, no... No one seemed to be talking about it. I mean, playwrights were, you know, people like uh, Alan Bleasdale with Boys and the Black stuff and things like that. But musicians were just, I don't know, were Duran Duran were doing videos on kind of yachts and stuff. And I thought, what the hell's this? And then Billy Bragg emerged. So, Billy, you were my um, Lonnie Donegan. And the interesting thing about that as well that kind of goes full circle is, you know, Woody Guthrie's my big hero and people like you and McCall. Well, I only got into them because of Billy Bragg. You know, I thought I thought Billy Bragg was the bee's knees when I was 13 and I first encountered him. And uh, I, I listened then to an interview that he did where he started talking about folk music. And because he'd said to listen to it, I thought, oh, I thought this was some sort of antwacky thing, you know, that, that only old people did. And why would I, as a 13-year-old, want to be listening to folk music? But I, I did, I started getting into it, you know, because because he'd said, listen, so I managed to get some Woody Guthrie stuff. I can go on the internet back then, obviously, to, to scour it. I got some Ewan McCall. And um, by the time I was 16, I started going to Jackie and Bridie's folk club. Jackie and Bridie were in the spinners at one point. So, and and they, had, they, were, they were a big thing, actually, in the 60s, Jackie and Bridie. Um, and so I went to uh, their folk club and, and started doing all that kind of stuff. And of course, I'm a folk singer today. So Billy Bragg, for me, was my gateway to all of that. So just as Lonnie Donegan was the, the revolutionary in my dad's generation, Billy Bragg was the revolutionary in mine, you know. And um, it's funny because Lonnie Donegan was singing Woody Guthrie songs. Billy Bragg led me to Woody Guthrie songs. And so in that evening, I was sat there with, uh, you know, my dad was in the room. My mum was there as well. And... Um, it just felt kind of full circle, particularly because it was in the very room, albeit now done up, that I hosted Woody Guthrie's centennial celebrations um, along with Woody's daughter, Nora, and Lonnie Donegan's son, Peter. Uh, some of you will remember that night. It was a really special night. Um, yeah, the Woody Guthrie centennial. So it all felt kind of a lovely circle of, of life there, you know, taking us from Lonnie Donegan through to Billy Bragg, to Woody Guthrie, and then all the way back to Lonnie Donegan again. Um, and so it was a nice nice thing to, to hear, and it was uh, good to see Billy in good form as well. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've spoke about that. Um, I got a lovely message from Mandy, actually, uh, from News From Nowhere. And uh, let me read that here, because remember, I, I made a commitment to enjoy life, didn't I? I'd been reading a lot of psychology books, and I... Reading a lot of books about um, worry and future worry because I think I I do that, um, and I made this commitment. And my commitment is, I commit to enjoying life rather than making myself suffer. I accept myself and enjoy myself right now, for who I am and the life I am living. So that was my little thing to myself. And I got a message from from Mandy on my. Uh, on my website and and she said she said uh, 
that your decision to enjoy life reminds me of this. So listen to this from Mandy, because I think this is cool. If I could have but one wish granted, it would be to live in a universe like this one, at a time like the present, with friends like the ones I have now, and be myself. Isn't that lovely? And it, it relates actually, Mandy, to something um, that I've also kind of got as a, a little affirmation that I say, which is, you know, I'm always trying to change things, me. I'm always striving to make a change. And I think the striving sometimes may, results in me being miserable. So one of my things is I am fine just the way I am, whether change happens or not. And I think that kind of sums up what you're saying as well. And she also told me about a postcard um, from an activist in Namibia. Now, Namibia, I don't know if you know, but that that bordered South Africa. Um, at the, and it was kind of, I'm trying to remember my history now at the time. I remember Namibia was, was kind of part of the whole apartheid thing. So this Namibian activist had sent a postcard which said, hope and optimism in spite of the present difficulties, which I think is... Uh, which I think is lovely as well. So thanks for sending that in, Mandy. I do love getting your comments, so please do get in touch. Let's know uh, what you want me to talk about and all of that kind of thing. Um, let's see, what else did I want to talk about? Well, last week as well, I went to the Kindfulness Cafe and I was doing some more connecting communication, sometimes called non-violent communication. Well, usually called that, actually. I just think the name connecting communication is better. And I did it with this fantastic social enterprise up in Bootle called the Kindfulness Cafe, or the Kindfulness Coffee Club, actually, is the proper name. And I'll be back there next week doing a little bit more. Lovely, lively, engaging group. And I really enjoyed spending my time there. So if you're in that area or if you're a local business and you want to help them out doing the good stuff that they do, then give them a shout up on Nosley Road there in Bootle. And uh, I'm going to be actually at the Home Office next week teaching connecting communication. So I'm very excited by that. And then I'll be back up at the Kindfulness. Neil, who um, who runs the place, his, uh, his opening words to me is, now we've got you, you'll never be able to leave. <laughs> and lo and behold... Um, that one-off session means that I'm back on Friday. So, uh, so that's the, that may come to pass. Who knows? Um, I'm just looking ahead. 19th and 20th of July, everyone. Get that in your diaries. I'm doing a, a show at 81 Renshaw Street in Liverpool, which is a lovely music and theatre space. And it's a collaboration with the very talented Sarah Lowe's. Now, you may well know Sarah Lowe's work because she is the writer of the award-winning play, um, what was it called, An Afternoon with Bruce Lee. And what she's come up with are these spectacular monologues, which she'll be performing herself on the night, which are kind of a, a modern take on traditional fairy tales. So you've got very, very modern characters, you know, like people called Bianca and... Uh, is it Chanel or Chantel? I'm trying to I'm trying to remember, but they're terrific. You know, I think you really, really enjoy them. And the collaboration is that her monologues are going to be interspersed with with some of my songs that are kind of related to some of the themes. So she's going to be doing a monologue. I'm going to be doing some songs. She'll do her next monologue. So there's going to be four monologues and three little sets by me, and it's going to be a lovely, 
lovely show. I know you're going to enjoy it. She's a really, really great writer and performer. So come along to that. It's at 81 Renshaw Street. You don't have to buy a ticket in advance. It's just £8 on the door. And that's on the 19th and the 20th of July. And it's for two nights only. So if you miss it, you miss it. So make sure you're there. It's in just 10 days time. And um, yesterday I actually booked a house gig for August. So if anyone wants house gigs or anything like that, uh, I do have some spaces. Give me a yell. What else was I going to talk about? I think I might have actually finished what I was going to talk about. But I'll, I'll, I noticed I got a message on my um, on my Facebook because just before I come on, I said, "What do what do people want me to talk about?" And I got something. Um, I got something from Gary Langley, and he says. Um, the G20 protests in Hamburg, the right or wrong way to protest is his question. In my opinion, he said, it's young people just using safety in numbers to destroy people's property. So that's Gary's view. And I have to be honest, um, I've not really been following this. I have a funny thing with the news now. I, I access the news. It doesn't access me. So uh, in the past, I've had all sorts of stuff on my Facebook feed and... I, I used to have the news on all the time and I'd listen to the news constantly. And I've dipped in a little bit more with all the uncertainty that's going on in, in, in politics in this country at the moment. Um, but I'm weaning myself back off it again. So in actual fact, I'd seen a little bit of a mention, but I didn't see this as a massive story, funnily enough, because I'm I'm kind of dipping in. And I think the main news sites have largely been reporting what's going on in the G20 itself. And uh, to be honest, I don't really know what's been going on there. I'm very ill-informed at the moment, everyone. Very ill-informed. But I just like to kind of protect what's going on in my headspace. But I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, I'll give you a, a sense of what I think. Um, I think it's probably a good idea not to focus too much on what people do, and to focus instead on what what need they're expressing through what they're doing. I don't know if that's well explained or not, but let's say, for instance, I don't know because I've not followed it closely, but let's say if people are using kind of strategies that you don't like, try and get behind the strategies and see what is it that these people feel and what is it that they're needing? Because whenever we feel something, whenever we, whenever we do anything, we're just trying to meet our own needs. You might not like the strategy, but that's what's happening, basically. So these young people, you know... Try, I would advise trying to move out of the who's right game. We both played that game together, in fact, Gary, haven't we? You know, because we used to both be involved in AFC Liverpool and, and um, you know, butted heads occasionally. But I've encountered this sort of new philosophy of non-violent communication about four years ago, and I'm very, very attached to it. I think it's, um, I think it's something that makes the world a better place. And one of the things that kind of helps me think about these things is whenever somebody is doing something that isn't making life wonderful for me. I try and step outside of trying to be the referee of who's right and who's wrong and just try and get behind and connect myself to what those people are feeling and what they're needing in that moment. So my guess with those young people who are out demonstrating, I'm guessing that they're feeling kind of desperate. I'm guessing that they're feeling angry. And I'm guessing, and I might be wrong, because I'd have to have a conversation with them in order to confirm the guess or otherwise, but I'm guessing that what they need in are things like, um, you know, things like equality and justice and those things in that sort of realm. 
And so whenever you see someone doing a strategy like that, I'd, I'd always recommend what is it that they're really after? Because once we can connect to people's needs, on both sides, by the way, you know, not just in terms of those who are demonstrating, once we connect to what it is that's getting in the way of them using a strategy that is actually less costly, that is more connecting, then it allows a lot more creative possibility. When you know my needs and I know yours, and our attention is brought to, to that, I'm much more likely to want to meet your needs and you much more likely to want to meet my needs if we have that level of connection rather than we have some sort of image of each other as a bogeyman. So I think that would be my way of looking at it, not to get into the who's right or who's wrong game, but to try and think what are the what are the needs of the respective sides. And once we have them on the table, we can then come up with strategies where neither side has to drop their needs, but we'll come up with a, a new strategy which can ensure that both, both of those needs get met. And I think in any conflict situation, wherever there's upset or distress or anger or conflict or violence or pain, that's normally my go-to approach now. I, I try as much as I can. Obviously, it's harder when it's it's in personal relationships, but even there, I'll I'll try and get to the point where I'm I'm trying to focus on what the person is feeling and what the person is needing in that point. And when my attention is drawn to that, I find myself much more willing to try and meet that person's needs. And so by the same token, I think it's beneficial for me as well, rather than to judge people, which is a bit of a self-sabotage, because it never allows me to get to the point where I explain, well, actually, this is what I'm feeling, and actually, this is what I'm needing at this moment. I think a lot of the times in relationships we act out, don't we? We act out in order to try and alert the other person to how much pain we're in. And I think it's better instead just to express the pain maybe. And that leads you then to being able to express what your need is. I'm guessing those young people are feeling very frustrated with the political system at the moment. I'm guessing they're feeling kind of desperate and they're... They would like a world which is fairer and more harmonious and that they don't see any hope of getting that at the moment. And so this is the strategy they're choosing in that kind of desperation, I suppose. So that would be my guess. So what we've got here is a set of people who are feeling frustrated, who are in great pain, who are needing more justice in the world and... That's what I see when I see them doing that. You might not like the strategy, but what I would always invite you to do is to think less about what people do, what people say, what people think, and just use that as a window to get behind all of that, to see what is it that people feel, what is it that people need, and then try and come up with a strategy that meets their feelings and needs and meets your feelings and needs as well. And then start connecting, start communicating on that basis. I wish I'd have done that, you know, nine years ago when I was involved in AFC Liverpool and maybe um, maybe I could have helped people connect to what they were needing too and, you know, maybe, maybe we wouldn't have butted heads in quite the same way as we did. So I think that's my approach to conflict now, um, Gary. Thanks for your question. So I'm not going to get into the who's right, who's wrong game. I see people who are desperate, who are needing a different kind of world. And um, I'm kind of connected to what their needs are. I'd be really interested 
and for people to have a think about what the needs are on the other side. What are the needs of the police in that situation? Um, again, you may not like their strategy, but what are their needs in that moment? What are the needs even of people like Donald Trump? I'm kind of curious to investigate things along that way. Yeah, I know you think, yeah, I've got this kind of uh, story in my head now that you're thinking I'm some sort of namby-pamby, wishy-washy lefty. Um, and maybe I am. I don't know. But it, it is interesting to me to try and look at conflict from a number of different ways and to try and see that what the conflict is really about is a set of human beings who are locked into this struggle whereby one side has to win and one side has to lose. And I don't see the world like that anymore. And I think that there is a way in which everyone's needs can get met. You know, we live in a world where even physical needs are not met, never mind the emotional needs. You know, people don't have their need for food or or shelter or, you know, water, clean water. We live in a planet where that is not even met. And so my guess is that those young people who are protesting are looking for a world where that is kind of met automatically and nobody wants for those things. And... Um, yeah, I think we've got enough resources in the world to meet everyone's physical needs. And I think we've got enough love and imagination and empathy within our hearts as part of our natural way of being without all the other stuff getting in the way that we can meet all the other needs as well. So that's my answer. It's a bit of a wishy-washy answer, but it's what I think. And it's the way I kind of see the world increasingly. And it doesn't stop me being on the side of um, of justice and on the side of equality and wanting those sorts of things but it, it does it does mean that I see things in a slightly different way than perhaps I used to so what do you think about that I'd love to hear what your 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 thoughts are it might be a very different answer than you you thought that I would give um but this has been the impact I suppose um of this kind of new consciousness of um what would you call it kind of focusing in on people's feelings and needs much more than trying to be a referee on the world and, and be Judge Judy on everyone and decide who's right and who's wrong. So I would love to hear what you think about that. Well, I think I've talked your ear off lots, haven't I? Uh, on all sorts of things. Um, we're, 40, we're 45, 46 minutes in. I still haven't had the knock on the door, so that's good, isn't it? Because uh, it hasn't interrupted our little chat. And I will see you on Sunday. So let me know. What is it you want me to talk about? Have you got any questions? you got anything that you want to share? Um, because it makes it nice in two ways. Here. I'd love to hear from you as well. And I'm going to play you out now with this week's Song of the Week. Tatty Bye. See you next Sunday. Subjects my computer screen If you made it, you know what I mean Princess Deborah is an online queen Princess Deborah makes me vexed Here today and gone the next Princess Deborah is an online queen She's more fruity than a slot machine See that picture on display When she's not talking, it'll make you stay Princess Deborah is an online queen She's more fruity than a slot machine, yeah Well, Princess Deborah, I was brave Princess Deborah, my heart I gave Princess Deborah, said, do hey
Deborah, said, do behave, dismiss me with 